Hello and welcome to Lowing Institute Conversations, a podcast where Lowing Institute researchers and some of the world leading experts discuss international issues of the day. My name is Jennifer Sue and I am a research fellow at the Institute's Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program. Today, I am delighted to welcome Fang Yang and Fergus Ryan to the podcast to discuss Fang's latest paper for the Lowing Institute. The paper is titled Translation Tensions, Chinese Language Media in Australia. We will chat about themes and questions raised in the paper and beyond. Fang Yang is a PhD candidate at the School of Communication and Creative Arts, Deakin University. She researches Chinese language media on WeChat with a focus on human technology mediation. Her doctoral thesis is titled News Manufactories on WeChat, the World Business Censorship and Pseudo-Journalism. She is published in various outlets, including Asia and Pacific Policy Studies, Policy Forum, Media International Australia, The Conversation and others. Fergus Ryan is a senior analyst with Australian Strategic Policy Institute's International Cyber Policy Centre. He has worked in media, communications and marketing roles in China and Australia for close to a decade and has published widely on Chinese tech, entertainment and media industries. Most recently, Fergus was a journalist for News Corp, publication China Spectator and The Australian. Welcome, Fan and Fergus. Fan, let's start with sort of a brief summary of the paper you've written. Your paper is one of the first to provide insight into the published content of Chinese language media organizations in Australia. In the paper, you examine the production and representation of news stories covering bilateral tensions between Australia and China during 2020, the perceived links between Chinese language media and the Chinese Communist Party, and the potential of Chinese language media to shape the views of Chinese Australian communities. You've done really wonderful job in analysis of over more than 500 articles on two issues affecting Australia-China relations across three Chinese language news outlets. And you've also interviewed senior media professionals. You have three major findings. So I'm just going to ask you to briefly tell us what the three findings were. But before we do, the two issues that you covered were trade tensions and the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Zoli Jen's controversial Afghan child tweet. So in brief, what were the three findings, Fan? Well, first of all, I, I actually would like to define what Chinese as the media are in my research because I feel like the scope of my research is very important. Chinese language media or Chinese ethnic media can be really, really, really broad concept and they can include, for example, independently established Chinese language media in Australia and they can include probably ABC Chinese channel, SBS Chinese channel, and they can also include, for example, CGTN and they probably have their office in Australia as well. They're also Chinese language media, but the kind of Chinese as the media or Chinese language media that I'm looking at, I'm really interested in, is this kind of independently run and at least at the very beginning, they demonstrate very limited or maybe no institutional affiliation and they receive no government sponsorship or funding or they do not receive any kind of taxpayer sponsorship, at least at at the very beginning. And the situation might change throughout the development. So I look at three Chinese language media outlets, Daily Chinese Herald, um, Austrian Chinese Daily, and also Media Today. I choose these three media outlets because they are established by Hong Kongese Australian entrepreneurs, Taiwanese Australian entrepreneurs, and also the establisher, the founder of Media Today, Chen Ming, he's from China. So I chose these three media outlets because they demonstrate different kind of ownerships. So that is the reason that is that you know, the kind of context of this research. 
and I collected more than 500 articles portraying the Australian-China tension during 2020 and interviewed five senior-level media professionals to gain the insight, not just the media representation of the tension and also their industry's internal operation that underpin this kind of media representation. So here are um, three major findings that I discovered in my report So firstly, Chinese language media outlets in Australia are more likely to support Australian government policy rather than Chinese government policy, especially when they report issues in terms of the Australian-China tension. But in their coverage, they tend to editorialize to soften or maybe remove the criticism or really, you know, strong criticism of China and the Chinese government. So the reason behind this form of self-censorship, or we can call it content moderation, is that in part because Chinese language media outlets in Australia, they produce very little original content themselves. And instead, they translate and also they reproduce the majority of their content from Australian dominant English media rather than Chinese media. Translating content from English into Mandarin Traditional Chinese or simplified Chinese is primarily because of the lack of financial support, the lack of financial resources and human resources. And through my interviews with five senior level media professionals, Chinese language media professionals say that they prefer to republish Australian content because this can help Chinese migrants better integrate into the Australian mainstream society. And this kind of translation does not primarily emphasize the accuracy or accurate exchange of information. So editorialization, dramatization, and also sensationalization is always the key point that involved in the process of content translation. And this kind of dramatization or sensationalization can be even more severe when it comes to the publication on WeChat or on their news app or on their news website because the more clickbaity their headline is, the more traffic that they can gain from online, right? Or any kind of digital platforms. So self-censorship is also embedded within this kind of uh, organization's editorial process. This is particularly the case for Chinese language media outlets whose content is distributed not just across Australia, but to mainland China via WeChat, their news apps, and also news website, when politically sensitive content could be blocked by the Great Firewall. So outlets are experienced self-censorship conducted by media professionals out of the concern for loss of market share. And they also do this because of their safety concerns for themselves and also for their family members. So you've covered lots of themes that we hope we'll get to in the podcast, but I want to bring Fergus in now. Fergus, you've worked many years before joining Aspie as a journalist, hearing and reading about fans' findings from a journalistic perspective. Does the report suggest that the state of Chinese language media is in somewhat of a dire straits, the lack of funding, lack of original content, pressure, self-censorship, and the like? Well, firstly, let me just thank you for having me on and congratulations to Fan Yang on what is a really fascinating report. To your question, Jennifer, the picture the report paints of Chinese language media in Australia isn't great. So some of the problems you just mentioned, there's a lack of original reporting, 
there's a lack of resources, and I think most concerning, there's um, self-censorship. And I think one of the great things about Fan's work here is that she's been able to speak directly to the people who are involved in these outlets and get a candid assessment of that self-censorship that does take place. So, you know, a lot of it, it doesn't surprise me. Um, and a, a lot of the problems identified in this report and other reports about this topic, they often mirror problems that we see in the media industry more generally, talking more specifically about the lack of resources and how that constrains these outlets from doing original reporting. I mean, this is very familiar to me personally, you know, having worked as a journalist, the economics of the industry means that the efforts that journalists make are really stretched and there's this constant pressure to be filling the void with more and more content. And of course, the fastest and easiest way to do that is to do pickups of other media exclusives. So that is unfortunately a large part of what the modern day journalist does. And in my personal experience, that was my central challenge really was to make sure that I filled up my quota of content and I tried to work out how to do it as efficiently as possible to then free up as much time as possible to do original reporting. So in that sense, a lot of these problems are not unique to this particular sector. But of course, there are other problems related to Chinese language media that I'm sure we'll, we'll get further into as, as we discuss it. For sure. So for listeners and um, readers who work in the Australia-China space knows that there is a body of research out there suggesting that Chinese language media here in Australia are closely aligned to the Chinese party state. So Fergus, I want to bring you in because you have researched and observed this space for a long time. The fact that the vast majority of the articles analysed by Fan are translated and to some extent editorialised by the media outlets suggests that Chinese language media outlets are not as closely aligned to the Chinese party state as we might have assumed. Is that what we can take away from the paper or is there something beyond that? My interpretation of it is that, you know, this paper provides a really vivid snapshot that inevitably has to be somewhat limited, right? So there are the two case studies that Fan looks, looks at, the Jali Jian tweet and stories related to the economy. And so by making that initial choice, there's a, a lot of other stories that we're not taking a look at here. But, you know, nonetheless, it is a very valuable snapshot of these few issues. And, you know, frankly, I was surprised at how many of the, of the articles ended up being categorized as either Canberra leaning or Beijing leaning. I hope I don't come off as being too naive by saying that, you know, in my view, quality journalism should be neither Canberra leaning nor Beijing leaning. You know, if it's going to lean towards anything, it should be towards the truth. And so, you know, if, if indeed so many of the articles could be deemed to be either Canberra leaning or Beijing leaning, I think that's a really sad indictment on the original English language reports that have been picked up by these Chinese Australian media outlets. Good observation there, Verkus. So, Fan, there is 
in reading your report and engaging with other Australia-China observers, one of the, I guess, one of the comments I, I've received and have chatted to others about is just where does your paper sit within that body of literature that has come out in recent years where Chinese language media outlets in Australia are mostly aligned with Chinese party state. I know to some extent you don't have the you didn't have the bandwidth within the report to address those issues, but now that we're talking about it, about the paper and a little bit more beyond, what's your reaction and what's your assessment? Yeah, sure. That is a really interesting observation. And I have to say that I've been researching on this kind of space, like from news focus, which have a feature account in Australia to Chinese at media industry in general. Like every time it just keeps surprising me. So I remember that when I first drafted my ethics application with my university and I predicted the kind of sensitive concern, like the kind of ethical concern that I might have is that, okay, you know, those media workers, they might be really cautious about the kind of information they communicated on WeChat. Like they might be cautious about whether the research would be monitored by the Chinese government, by Beijing, and whether this kind of research would impose potential risk or threat on them. But to my surprise, during my interview in 2019 and also 2020, and I was really surprised because they wouldn't be concerned about the threat kind of imposed by Beijing. They'll be concerned about the threat imposed by Australian government. And they wouldn't be concerned about WeChat monitoring their contacts or WeChat monitoring their communication process. They are actually quite concerned about whether my report will be further covered by the Australian government and whether they're in the like whether my report will be known or whether their participation in my research will be known by their employees. It just, you know, all these bits of stories constantly never stop surprising me. Saying that the point that I'm trying to make that we always talk about whether Chinese as the media or Chinese language media, they're more affiliated with Beijing or they're more affiliated with, you know, Canberra, Australia or not. But the thing that Chinese at, at the media, this space has so many nuances and also complexities that I might not be able to fully comprehend in this report. And the ideological learning is not static and the ideological learning is not necessarily attached to their own personal political identity or civic identity. So one of the examples that I could potentially draw upon in this podcast is I'd like to emphasize the time frame of the research and the increasingly intensified geopolitical divide between China and the West, Australia and the United States in particular. And this kind of geopolitical tension, they constantly shape how the news is represented in this space. And also, I was told during my, inter- during my interview with my research participants that because of the report published at the end of last year on Chinese ethnic media in Australia, and they felt those Chinese ethnic media organizations, they felt that they have been surveilled, they have been tightly monitored by Australia. So in that sense, they have to, you know, they have to produce the content that is more Australian learning. And they also told me that because they identify themselves as Australian Chinese, we always say, you know, Chinese Australian migrants or Chinese migrants in Australia. But these people, my research participants, they told me that they identify themselves as Australian Chinese. 
and quote unquote, they said that we are Australian first because we work here, we work in this country, we study in this country, and we are Chinese because we are culturally and also emotionally affiliated with the country because our families are still in China. They told me that back in times in 2016, when Australian-China relation is much more friendly than now, they told me that they can publish either Australian-leaning or China-leaning content and no one would criticize them. But now, because of the intensified geopolitical divide between Australia and China, and they constantly feel that they are monitored by the so-called Australian mainstream society, and they told me that they have to pick a stance. They have a picked aside, but as business entities, as migrants in Australia, they tend to show, they tend the content that they produced tend to be more Australian leaning. And as I said before, the time frame is very important. And we could also say that in 2000, in the early 2000, there was a time when Beijing started、um, initiating Chinese media go out policy and. At that time, Beijing they provided a certain amount of financial sponsors to Chinese language media in Australia and also in the United States and also in other countries in the West. So, some of my research participants, I started drawing upon my data from my thesis and also this report. Some of my research participants they told me that they. Well, these research participants they tended to have extensive experience in Chinese language media, and they told me that at that time, yeah, we received a small amount of financial sponsorship from Beijing, and we started producing content on behalf of Beijing. But the thing that we didn't, the the, the kind of content was not welcomed by the audience、mm-hmm. because our target audience were Chinese migrants in Australia, and they expected to see something different. From what they had exposed to when they were in China, and then when they saw the content produced by Beijing or produced on behalf of Beijing, and they felt rather delusional. They'd be like, "Why were still watching or reading content that was so similar to what we had watched, what we had read when we were in China?"、Mm-hmm. and They said that well, okay, those content they were not necessarily hard political news or those kind of propagandas, and they told me that those content were actually cultural products. They said that at that time the content wasn't well welcomed, and at some point those Chinese language media received sponsorship from Beijing. They decided to stop receiving such kind of sponsorship because they thought that that wasn't a sustainable economic development model. Right. Because they were thinking, once the sponsorship was withdrawn from Beijing, they also lost the market. In your report, I think what's been missing from some of the research that exists out there is the agency of the media professionals that work in this space, and also the importance of the readership. But I think at the same time, you do outline. The self-censorship practices that takes place in these outlets, and Fergus, in your own work, you've looked very closely at controlled social media and media environments. What's your perspective on the self-censorship of Chinese language media professionals interviewed by Fan working here in Australia? How do we reconcile the practice of self-censorship and one of the findings where the majority of the articles are Canberra-leaning? Well. 
You know, I, I really do appreciate the, the nuance that Sun has injected into the discussion there, highlighting the agency of these media professionals and, you know, the pressure that they feel not just from, from Beijing, but from their own audiences here in Australia and how their expectations affect the content that they produce. You know, as I read this report, I, I kept thinking, I imagine that adjudicating those sorts of questions of what is Canberra leaning and what is Beijing leaning would have been really, you know, one of the most challenging parts of putting this paper together. You know, especially with the Jali Jian Afghan tweet story, which was somewhat of a, a Rorschach test of a story. I mean, even among my colleagues at Aspie, there was an immediate divide down the room of those who saw that, thought that the image was a doctored image, mm-hmm. and others who saw, who thought that it was, you know, more of a realist cartoon and a work of agitprop. So, you know, even with that one story, it's really difficult to pigeonhole people or outlets and, and say with a high degree of certainty which side of the divide they're on because it's a really nuanced question, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, that left me wondering whether the article that I wrote about that particular incident, had it been picked up by Chinese language media, which bucket would we put it in? Because in, in my article, I criticized the prime minister for reacting in the way that he did. But I also criticized Tencent for censoring Scott Morrison's WeChat post about the incident. So is that Beijing leaning? Is that Canberra leaning? Or would it just never be considered at all to be picked up by a Chinese language media in Australia? And frankly, I think that's more likely. So personally, I would put more weight on the finding that self-censorship is so common because even if you're sourcing material from English language reports, if you're censoring key parts of those stories to avoid upsetting the Chinese Communist Party, you end up leaving your readers with only a partial view of the story and one that wouldn't make total sense to them, I think. And I think that would actually invite them to see things more from the CCP's point of view as a result. So, you know, just to take one example, in a paper that some of my colleagues put together last year, I believe it was, called The Influence Environment, which looked at this topic as well, they found that Sydney Today, one of these outlets, it cut out touchy paragraphs from their translations of ABC and Sydney Morning Herald stories about the Shaket Mosulmane raids. And so once they've done that, it is a pickup from an English language story, but by censoring, you know, key parts of it, does that make it Beijing leaning or Canberra leaning? So I, I just think that, you know, it's, it's really difficult to adjudicate these things. So I admire Fun's efforts at uh, attempting to, to put them into those buckets. One issue that has come up in my discussion with observers in this space is the importance and the prominence of WeChat official accounts. So Fan, you note in the report why you don't cover the WeChat official accounts in the three media outlets you cover, but they do play such an important role in the lives and where Chinese Australians receive their information from. So I'm keen to hear from you both your views of 
WeChat official accounts in Chinese language media outlets here in Australia. To what extent are these accounts a source of information rather than misinformation for for different Chinese communities in Australia? Maybe I'll go to Fergus first and then Fan. Sure. These accounts on WeChat are often referred to as self media accounts. They're extremely popular and very influential. One thing that's really important to say about them is that they really can be avenues for critical journalism, and that has been something that has surprised me when I've looked at content on WeChat, sometimes referred to as edge ball content in China. It's, <laughs> it's content that you wouldn't otherwise be able to find in traditional media. Sort of skirts the boundaries of what is and isn't permissible in the censorship regime. You can sometimes find some quite surprising results. And as Fan mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of the time these publications are incentivized to chase clicks with sensational clickbait headlines. But you know, having worked on sort of the opposite end of this as a journalist in China, at one point I was writing for a, a local publication that was catering to foreigners living in Beijing. The bread and butter content that you want to Deliver to that audience. It has to be sourced from Chinese language media or with interviews with people on the ground, because that's the information that is most useful and informative to that particular audience. So you need to be able to draw on content that comes from that locale. Whether it's me working as a journalist in China, sourcing that material from Chinese media or Chinese Australians. Media professionals working in Australia sourcing it from English language reports. So misinformation is rife on WeChat, certainly. And again, that's not a problem that's unique to WeChat. We see that all around the world. But it it is important to note that there is still a lot of good information that is useful to Chinese Australian audiences that they need to to be able to hear. And you've worked, and your research is on WeChat official accounts. First of all, are official accounts is that what matters when we look at Chinese language media rather than just WeChat accounts? Are they more a source of information for Chinese migrants to adapt to their new communities rather than misinformation? Yes, that is correct. I have approximately a hundred thousand words on WeChat official accounts in Australia, which is my doctoral thesis. So WeChat official accounts is very important. I remember that in Wanning's, in Professor Wanningson's report published in two thousand and eighteen, Chinese migrant media consumption habits. She said that more than well, according to her report, more than five hundred twenty-two Chinese migrants from mainland China. Were surveyed and among this group of research participants, more than sixty percent of them consume news regularly, routinely from WeChat official accounts. So that is to say, the significance of WeChat news-focused WeChat official accounts cannot be undermined in Australia. So it is very important to point out as well that. Chinese ethnic media or news-focused WeChat official accounts, digitally dependent media organizations, or digitally native media organizations on WeChat—they're not unproblematic. They are predominantly business-driven, and there has been a lack of media ethics within such kind of organizations. And I remember that maybe in 2018 or in 2016, ABC published a report, fake news. 
Western News Focus, which are official accounts in Australia. And then I remember there was one quote from a founder from a News Focus, which are official account. They said that we're not media. We're a platform. We're fetching news from everywhere. And then we put this news together into one article. And I happened to interview that person in my research. And then I asked them, so what do you mean by we're not media? Like, this kind of discourse is not foreign to us. It's not unfamiliar to us, right? Like they have been constantly proposed or initiated by Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google by saying that we're not doing news, like we're a platform. We're trying to be neutral. They use this kind of discourse to shield the business operation of those tech companies or those tech companies on WeChat. And I happened to interview the person involved in the ABC's report and I asked them. And to my surprise, they told me that we could be more objective than Australian dominant media outlets. I was really surprised and asked them why. And they told me because media organizations, they are all biased. They're all biased in the sense that the news is always editorialized and also like the news is produced through the lens of the journalist. And then, you know, the news got processed by the editors and institutional agenda, political learning were imbued within a news story. But for us, we produce news stories. We, we do not produce news stories. We aggregate those news stories from different angles. And then we put those news stories all together into one article. So we represent different perspectives within one news story. <laughs> and that was mind blowing to me. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, that come back to really a series of philosophical question. How do we define misinformation, disinformation or fake news? What are they? Do we really have a quantitative measurement for it? Do we really have a parameter for it? Does objectivity really exist in journalism if objectivity is an idea or an ideal? We tend to aim to train ourselves to internalize the idea that objective understanding is important, objective report in journalism is important, but we fail to recognize or pursuit of objectivity is actually also subjectively screwed as news is filtered by newsworthiness, the idea of newsworthiness, right? When we select news stories and also additional realization and personal agenda and institutional agenda. Like I'm not trying to defend people or defend those media, small, low budget media organizations for themselves producing fake news or disinformation. Like I do not wish that to happen because misinformation or disinformation they distort people and they confuse people as well i teach at university and i constantly have undergrad students coming to me because i ask them questions routinely where do you consume news stories and some of the chinese international students they told me that they consume news stories from wechat their parents they share news stories on wechat to them their parents based in china share stories from melbourne today to them and they're like We know they're fake news, like some of them are fake news. We know some of the stories are really problematic, but also that is part of their routine because their social networks are based on WeChat and they have very limited choice or consume news stories elsewhere. And when they look at news stories produced by the ABC, by SBS, by CMI and Herod, and they'll be like, 
the kind of portrait of Chinese government and Chinese people is just so different to what we see, what we are exposed to in China on Weibo, on WeChat. And that is a huge divide. Yeah. So I guess the question is, I mean, there's multiple layers there, fan, you know, objectivity of the journalist, of the, of the media professional. Is that a taught thing in, at university as you go through your training cadetship? And the, the ability to pick up on bias, is that a taught thing at, at university? I mean, those are sort of issues that we all grapple with as individuals as we encounter many more sources of information. But it leads me to ask you both, Fan, you mentioned in the report one of the suggestions in trying to uh, improve Chinese language media outlets here in Australia is for greater Australian government support to improve and their organization and their independence and rigor of their coverage of news as one way to reduce their reliance content on translation services in China. I, I want to ask you, Fergus, having worked as a journalist, is this a viable solution for greater government support? Does that also um, inhibit issues of objectivity and maybe even increase bias? I mean, is greater Australian support, a government support, a viable solution? I think we have good models of this working already with SBS and ABC. So I think it is possible to create a model whereby good journalism can get funded without there being any undue influence from the, the funder on the content that's produced. I think Perhaps a greater concern to me, certainly at this particular moment, is the policy changes that are happening in, in China. So just this week, we had the NDRC come out and with new rules, further codifying other rules that had existed that prohibit private capital from creating original news inside China. And so, you know, to the extent that any of these WeChat accounts or media Chinese Australian media outlets are linked to Chinese companies or their accounts are linked to individuals back in China, that can mean that these sorts of policy changes in the PRC can have an effect on their ability to produce original content. A lot of these changes are, are quite wide sweeping. They are essentially making it more clear that the media space in China is to be tightened even further and only really state media can be trusted to do original reporting. So I think those sorts of policy changes that are, that are happening in China are also worth keeping in mind. Fan, do you, so beyond Australian government support, what other measures could we consider? And having heard Fergus saying that there are sort of new policies implemented in China with regards to reporting and journalism. What's your sense for the Chinese language media outlets here in Australia? Will they decrease their reliance on China and translation in the short to medium term just because of the pressure and the demands of their readership of requiring something that's much more Australia-focused? So first off, I would actually like to respond to the idea of support. And I like while I was writing that piece of advice or recommendation, I was thinking whether that is an effective suggestion or not, or whether that was just one of my ideal, because that is what I would hope. And then I was thinking, well, 
probably it's really hard to get financial support from the government from either Australian side or the Chinese side because from the Chinese side there would be credibility concerns and also from the Australian government well the reality is that Australian federal government they cut off the funding to the ABC as well so it's not the best environment for media and by support I mean, it's not just limited to financial support. And I think more importantly is the recognition from Australian mainstream society. And whether Australian mainstream society, they would recognize those resourceful or Chinese language media with longer history as journalism and whether firsthand, well, firsthand access to authority materials to, you know, press conference would be given to those Chinese um, language journalists. Because one of the examples that I could possibly talk about from my thesis was that there was a quite resourceful Chinese language media organization in Australia, and they started decadralizing their staff members, their journalists, and they gave their journalists a reporter certificate to identify them. So they started identifying their staff members, not as little editors, Xiaobian in Chinese but as journalists, and they give them this kind of occupational support and occupational training by saying that you need to produce original news. And because the organization is much more resourceful than just those digitally native media organizations on WeChat. And then one day, the journalist, they went to the scene where an incident happened, and they were trying to squeak through the crowd to reach the police officer over there. And then the police officer asked them, are you a journalist? And the person said, yes. And then the police officer checked the reporter's certificate, the document, and they said, no, you're not a journalist. You're not from the ABC. You're not from SBS. So I think that in terms of the practicability of financial support, it is more important to give social recognition to those Chinese language media that report original news stories. So final wrap-up point here. Fergus, I'm going to go to you first. Chinese language media has often been viewed in Australia from a national security lens. Is that the way to perceive it? in the near future, or is it much more beyond a national security issue? And are we doing the right thing in bringing in various aspects, stakeholders into this conversation? I think um, San is certainly doing the right thing in bringing those voices into the conversation and looking at the issue with such a limited scope as, as only a national security problem is not really looking at the overall issue Clearly enough, I think. I wanted to make a a broader point, if I may, about the media in Australia, that a lot of the the stories that these Chinese language media outlets are are sourcing their content from. Because I think if, as Fan has made very clear, most of the content that is being produced by these Chinese language outlets is coming from English language reporting, that really is, in a sense, the source of the problem. And I think there are some misconceptions about that reporting. There are certainly a lot of problems. But one study that I would point listeners to was done by the Media Monitoring Service Stream. They looked at a year's worth of coverage across all of the major newspapers and TV networks as well, including their online platform. And they showed that the Global Times fiercely nationalistic tabloid from China, was quoted more frequently across Australian media than Xi Jinping 
or the foreign ministry or any member of the Chinese embassy. And so that is, to me, just terrifying. It is, that is absolutely woeful and it needs to, to stop. But, you know, another fa- finding that came out of that study was that stories about trade received three times more coverage than national security concerns and 12 times as much as human rights issues. And, you know, really quite interestingly, Zhao Lijian, the Chinese diplomat, Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, his Afghan tweet, because it was so inflammatory and it was able to capture the media's attention, it received more prominent coverage in two weeks than the human rights abuses in Xinjiang received in six months, according to that study. So, I think it's important to zoom out and look at that, at the overall media environment in Australia, because if that's where we're sourcing the content from, the problem goes much deeper. I absolutely agree with you, Fergus. Well, I'm going to just say thank you to both. There's so much to cover there, so many issues, and Fergus and both Fan, you have outlined some of the key issues for us to consider in the Australia-China space, but also not just the Chinese language media in Australia, but also some of the issues that we need to think about within the Australian English language media as well. So thank you both for the very thoughtful discussion and interesting stories you've brought forward to this podcast. You've been listening to Conversations, a podcast from the Lowy Institute team with production support from Darcy Milner and Josh Goding. See you next time. Mm-hmm.